13, and we'll continue our series tonight entitled A Tale of Three Rulers. We've been in this series for several weeks now, and uh, we're going to look at this new passage of Scripture in chapter number 13. Uh, Now that Samuel has stepped off of the scene, at least figuratively, we talked about last week, uh, his last real instruction to the entire nation together. Uh, What would Saul do next? How would he respond now that he was seemingly uh, holding the keys to the kingdom? What would he do next? How would he respond now that he has total authority? How will he react uh, to this new power? And you might think, man, uh, somebody with uh, that type of humility that we saw just a couple chapters before... And then this kind of build up, and now everybody's on the same page, and uh, they've essentially experienced national revival here in chapter 11 and 12. Uh, you would think that surely uh, this guy would have immediate success and everything would go as planned. Remember, the people wanted a king. They wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted to look like, be like everyone else. And how many of us know that when we want to be like someone else, Uh, typically it doesn't work out well. Uh, How many of us know that God created us to be who we are, the way that we are, uh, in His image, and when we see that these people were ready for change, they didn't necessarily get what they thought they were going to get. They got something completely different. We talked about that this is our struggle. This is a battle that every single one of us face. We all have a sin nature. We all have a desire. There's a part of each one of us deeply rooted in every single one of us that desires to do wrong. And that salvation that takes place when we place our faith in Christ, that is the changing point. We talked about this battle when we need, our souls need a king, and his name is Jesus, just like they needed a king. And no amount of good works or anything that you can do. We uh, had somebody get baptized a couple weeks ago. That's wonderful. We're thankful for that. Uh, But that is not what saves someone. Uh, We see all of these different things. And we've been talking about our series on service on Sunday morning. We'll be emphasizing that again this upcoming Sunday. But no amount of good that you can do. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewing the Holy Ghost. So it doesn't take Saul long to realize that he is in over his head. And there are problems, and we see that take place in verse number 1. If you're taking notes tonight on your handout, you can write down number 1, the trouble. The trouble. Look at verse number 1, 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul reigned one year. Now, let's just stop right there. It's not trying to be comical, but it's truthful. Okay, one year in, he's got one year under his belt, and it says, And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, that Israel also was had an abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. We'll stop right there. Saul has been king less than two years. 
Uh, just a small amount of time. And remember, uh, when Samuel promised the people what was going to take place in chapter number 8 and verse number 11, uh, Samuel kind of gave his prophecy. Hey, if you want a king, that's fine, but this is what you can expect. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons. And he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to employ them into his service. And he's going to, it says, and appoint them for himself. He's going to take them and make them workers. He's going to do things differently. Saul is amassing this army now. And it's finally starting to kind of take place. His first year, fairly peaceful. Everything's going fine. Uh, it's the honeymoon stage, all right? Uh, everything's totally fine. They love Saul. He's their king. We love him. We're thankful for him. It's wonderful. And then reality sinks in. Two years in, they notice that, hey, just because we have a king, that doesn't mean that we don't have an enemy. All of a sudden, an enemy rears its head, and they notice that they're not alone in this region. So what does Saul do? He gathers 3,000 soldiers of Israel's finest forces, and he brings them together and divides them out. His son, Jonathan, which is the first time we see Jonathan's name mentioned here in the Bible, Jonathan engages the enemy and defeats a garrison of Philistines. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Jonathan would later become the best friend of the future king, which is kind of, when you look at it, a weird relationship. Because Jonathan's dad is the king who wants David dead. And Jonathan, behind the back of his father, is best buddies with David. So it is a weird relationship that we'll talk about in a few chapters and how it unfolds. But Jonathan engages the enemy and defeats what the Bible calls a garrison. The Hebrew word is netzib. And it means a region or a, a, a large group or it has a secondary meaning. It means a high-ranking fire group of Philistines or it's a covert black ops military mission to assassinate one political figure. We don't really know. We just see that the result is that the Philistines are not happy. They're not happy at all. The Philistines know it, Jonathan knows it, and Saul knows it. And we see in verse number 3, And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. He wants them to know we have started World War II, or maybe World War uh, B.C. 1, whichever one we want to call it. Uh, but he has started a war. It says that they heard of it. Uh, it must have been enough for Saul to blow the trumpet of war to try and start getting the people to himself. He's trying to collect the people, anticipating problems, and he was right. In verse 4, it says, And all Israel heard say that Saul, his army, had smitten a garrison. Same word there, uh, Netzib. That Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines. We see how the Philistines saw the people now. So we see Saul has this army, 3,000 troops. Divides them out. Jonathan goes on this mission. He uh, kills at least some Philistines. At least one. Uh, kills some, or at least two, because it says Philistines. Uh, so he kills Philistines, comes back. Saul uh, anticipates that there's going to have problems. And so he blows the trumpet. Why is that significant to us? Because when we enlist in the army of the Lord at salvation, we can anticipate a fight. We can anticipate that there will be struggles and the enemy's army is going to be less than pleased with us. 
Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12. Remember Paul writes and he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The word wrestle is the Greek word pele. And it's the only time it's used in the scripture. Only one time. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Uh, Blueletterbible.com defines it this way. And it's uh, Strong's Concordance. It says, wrestling is a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other and which is decided when the victor is able to hold his opponent down with his hand upon his neck. This is not just, hey, let's just hug it out, you know, and and have a a wrestle uh, time. They're not playing Twister, all right? This is literal battle to the death. This is... Mono in mano, trying to show the battle between good and evil. Which one is going to win? And we say, man, I know that we wrestle spiritual forces that we can't see. Why? What, what is so important? Pastor, why are you telling me this? Because the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13 tells us our objective in the fight. It says, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now think about this. If my objective, because of verse number 12, wrestle not, my objective is to not get pinned down by the enemy with his hand on my throat, then standing is the appropriate posture that I need to be striving for. Does that make sense? I'm not going to win the battle laying down on the ground with the enemy over the top of me. My objective is to stand, and having done all, it says, to stand. That means with every breath of my body, with every fiber of my being, my objective is to stand. The goal is to be victorious. But I also have to understand that I am very quickly outnumbered. And that is the exact thing that the Israelites find out. Look at verse number 5. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. Now, remember, they're having a good time. We've got a king now. Everything's great. Life is grand in Gilgal. Everything's awesome. But all of a sudden, things take a dramatic turn when they realize just how many of the enemy there are. Notice this. Look at verse number 5. It says, and the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots. Now, let's stop. Let's take inventory. How many soldiers did Saul have? 3,000. And here in verse 5, we see that the Philistines have 30,000 chariots. These are not being hauled in a U-Haul truck. All right? Uh, These are not on a flatbed trailer being hauled. There are soldiers attached to these chariots. So you've got 30,000 chariots. There's one group. You've got 6,000 horsemen. So you've got 36,000 soldiers right here. And then if that wasn't bad enough, it says, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. There's ants everywhere. They're crawling everywhere. There's soldiers everywhere. And they have one objective, and that is to defeat Israel. You know, Satan is a craftsman in what he does. And he knows that if he can take out a believer, that he can ultimately attack God. 
His objective is to attack us in an ultimate effort to attack our Savior. That is his objective. That's why you are public enemy number one to Satan. That's why. Say, Pastor, why would he want me? He doesn't want you. He wants to get back at God. See, all of this stems back to Genesis chapter 3. Everything. And even before, when God threw Lucifer out of heaven, when he threw him out, cast him out because of pride, all of it goes back to that moment. And Satan saying, I am going to go to hell to attack anything that is attached to God. That means he hates you. That means he hates your family. That means he hates the church. That means he hates anything that bears the name of Jesus Christ. He hates. Hates with a passion. And Satan has never had a merciful day in his existence. He's never had. Well, Satan's going to have mercy on me, not on your life. He doesn't have mercy on anybody. And he's not going to start with you. So right now, when you get to verse number 5, they're outnumbered 12 to 1. This is not looking good. But remember what they had just seen. You remember just two chapters before, in chapter number 11, the story of the men of Jabesh who come and say, hey, we've got seven days, this crazy king wants our eyeballs. Remember that? What does Saul do? How many people does Saul gather in that battle? We see in chapter 11, 330 thousand soldiers show up to fight now that changes the odds all of a sudden it's not 12 to 1 for the enemy now it's 10 to 1 for the defense all of a sudden Israel has the numbers but it's encouraging to know they had it available to them but not one time do they ask for help not one time they don't call out to God they don't ask for additional resources they start to panic And this is discouraging because this is us. God answers prayer for us. And the very next week we're stressing about the next thing. Uh, God does something mighty in our hearts and our lives. Maybe he heals someone that we know or he answers a prayer request or he, uh, he provides in a miraculous way. And the very next week, next day, next hour, we're stressing about the next need. When we know that God just answered for us, just provided for us the next challenge. And we're looking for the enemy. We're looking at the enemy and say, oh my goodness, how is this going to, how's God going to come through? And we fail to realize what God has already done. We fail to remember what he's done. The people were focused on the strength of the enemy when they should have been focused on the strength of their God. Remember the story in 2 Kings chapter 6 when Elisha the prophet and his servant, you know, his servant goes outside to get his morning newspaper. You know, he's got his cup of Starbucks and uh, he's going out to the mailbox to get the newspaper. He comes back in. It's in the Hebrew, uh, but uh, Hebrews. Uh, so when you think about, uh, he goes out to the mailbox. Y'all will get that later. Uh, go out to the mailbox and uh, looks around and the entire city is surrounded by the enemy. 2 Kings chapter number 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, and host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. 
Same situation. Same situation as in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Chariots, horses. Uh, we see that. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? We're getting ready to die. We're going to die right here. I'm going to get to witness it firsthand. Verse 16. And he, Elisha, answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they, be, they that be with them. You think about they be more, they, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now think about this. Who is on the side of Elisha and his servant? God is. God is. Elisha was exactly where he was supposed to be in the city, doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing in the city, and he had no reason to fear. He saw something that the servant did not see. Now, we know that in verse 17, his eyes are going to be open and he's going to see what Elisha sees. But here's my, my point. We see, through eyes of faith, the same thing that Elisha sees when God answers prayer. When God does something miraculous for us, we see the army. We look at our surroundings and say, man, there is no, my circumstance, my situation, there is no way that anybody can help me. And God does something miraculous. Oh, yeah, well, I guess God could do something. I, I, he is God, by the way. And we're shocked that God comes through when we shouldn't be. We're shocked. Why? Because there are more with us than there are with them. And there is more on our side. If God be for us, who can be against us? And you think about all of the things that were mounting up. And Elisha, verse 17, prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. Uh, can I just say that all of us need somebody like Elisha in our life? In that moment when we're coming in with the newspaper and we've spilled our coffee all over it, shaking in our boots, what are we going to do? We all need an Elisha in our life. To say, Lord, open their eyes that they can see. Open their eyes to where they remember the promises. Open their eyes where they remember what you just did for them yesterday. And how you kept them safe on the way to work. And how you provided that bill that nobody else could provide. And how you made a way when there wasn't a way. All of those things that we just need to be reminded. And what happens? He said, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes. Amazing that this guy who is freaking out and Dying on the inside, trembling. God opens his eyes and it says, Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. He just saw horses and chariots. You know, there is something intimidating about a horse and a chariot. But there is something more intimidating about a horse and a chariot. A fire. A fire. You know, burning yet not being consumed. Uh, the burning bush. But the servant is overwhelmed. Because he focused on what he saw. And how often do we get focused and drawn off track by what we see? By what we see. Hey, church, we have a big God. Why are we distracted by what we see? Nothing has changed. It is, it is 7 o'clock. We still have the same God we had at 630 we still have the same God we had last Wednesday at 7 o'clock. He does not change. He's just as good right now as he was an hour ago. He is God. But let's make it personal. He's our God. 
He's our God. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did in His finished work at the cross. At the cross, I surrender my life. I owe all to you. Because of what He did. But the servant was focused on what he saw. Uh, Let's take one more. Remember Peter on the boat? The last episode of The Chosen. Uh, Sorry. Uh, But... uh, it's hard. I'm telling you, it is hard not to connect and not to be like, oh, this happened. In, let's, let's, what did it happen in the Bible? Uh, so remember Peter and the disciples on the boat. And remember Jesus comes walking on the water. It's a ghost. Uh, if it's you, Lord, if it's you, bid me come out on the water. And what does Jesus say? Come. I, I can see Jesus saying, come on. You know, uh, come on. Get out here. And what happens? Matthew 14, 30, and when he saw the wind boisterous, uh, what did Peter do? He started looking around at the obstacles around him. Man, that is a big wave. Uh, That is, I wonder how deep the water is here. Uh, All of the things he started thinking about. You know what gets us in trouble? We overthink. We overanalyze. Man, why, why is my boss in the, in the room with my supervisor? And they got the door closed and they're looking at my, my way. And, uh, you know, they're probably going to fire me and I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. And I don't, uh, I'm, I'm, my mortgage, I'm going to be homeless next week and my kids are going to get kicked out of school. And, uh, my wife's going to leave me and we're not going to. We go down the road when they're talking about where they're going to have lunch tomorrow. And they're talking about should we invite the guy, us, out there to, well, you know, we'll think about it. Hey, we overanalyze stuff. Stop. Don't overanalyze. Instead, can we not, instead of focusing on what we see, can we focus on the one that we can't see? Instead of focusing on what we see, focus and learn to trust the one that we can't see. We see the trouble. Every morning in Gilgal, there's a few less men. And over and over, which brings up a major situation for Saul. In verse number 8, we see not only the trouble in the first seven verses, we see the test in verse 8 through 12. The test. And the timeline here starts to get a little muddied. It shouldn't, but let's kind of walk through it. Remember, the Bible is not always laid out chronologically for us. All right, It doesn't always happen in sequential order based on the chapter and verses. Okay, so what we're going to see is a timeline that started in chapter number 10 and verse number 8. Almost three chapters have happened in that time period. All right, it doesn't seem like it, but it does. Look at chapter 10 and verse number 8. Samuel is speaking to Saul, and he says, Thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of thanksgiving, a peace, peace offering, excuse me. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. Samuel says, Saul, I want you to go here. I want you to stay for seven days. You're going to wait on me, and when I get there, we're going to offer the sacrifice of praise. Or that's what we're going to do. Seven days goes by. And what happens? No Samuel. Look at verse number 8. And he tarried seven days, according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and his people were scattered. Here it is. The people were scattered from him. Remember, Saul, what was Saul's biggest downfall at the end of his life? He was a prideful person. A prideful person. An arrogant person. And now these people are scattering from Saul. They don't respect Paul, Saul. They haven't really. He's not done anything to re- deserve their respect. 
but they don't respect him, so they start leaving. Verse number 9, and Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering to me. And peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. He does something that he is not entitled to do. He offers a sacrifice that he is not entitled to make. So he does something that is Samuel's responsibility. Think about the time period. He waits seven seven days, no text, no calls, no uh, Facebook message, no Instagram, no TikTok, no nothing, no newspaper. No way. Saul had to trust. And just a reminder, we have to trust. I, I don't think... I don't think that you get text messages alerts from Jesus. I don't. I'm just told that I have to trust. Uh, Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We trust. But I'm sure that those seven days did not go by quickly for Saul. Waiting. Hey, a few more guys didn't show up for breakfast this morning. I mean, come on, Samuel. We got to hustle here. Time goes by. And what happens? Instead of praying, instead of waiting, he made a decision that proved costly. He gave in to external pressure. You know, how often is that us? We see what's going on around us. We assume that God wants me to do his job. We assume that God must need my help. Remember, God will never ask you or I to do what only he can do. God will never ask you or I to do what only he can do. God hasn't shown up and answered my prayer, so he must want me to get involved here. He must want my help. Side note, God never needs our help. Never. He's God. He doesn't need our help. And Saul steps into an arena that he had no business being in. He wasn't a Levite. He even admitted in verse 12 that he was trying to gain the Lord's blessing and favor, but attempts to... To gain God's favor by doing things the wrong way. Now, I'm going to try and help my family pastor by spending less time with them. I'm going to come to church more pastor, but I'm not going to read my Bible during the week. Because as long as you feed me, that's all that matters. Uh, You know, I'm going to be better witness and I'm going to share my faith and give out more tracts. But I'm not going to deal with my secret sin. God blesses faithfulness and consistency. It doesn't mean that we're always going to be perfect. We're not going to fall. We're not going to fail. But are we even trying to follow the Lord? Am I trying to be? Am I striving to honor Him with my decision making? And I'm putting Him first in everything I do. As He's washing His hands, finishing up, guess who walks up? In verse number 10, it came to pass that as soon as He made an end of offering, He just got the supplies put back in the shed. And Samuel walks up. Now think about this. You're talking about burning an animal, sacrificing an animal. There would be smoke. There would be smell. And as Samuel gets closer, he sees and smells what's going on. So what does he do? He walks up and asks exactly what we would ask. What are you doing? Look at verse number 10. Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, what hast thou done? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? What have you just done? Now, there was no one else qualified to do what Samuel had to do. Nobody else. All of these things. But he wanted Saul to admit it. And this is where we kind of finish this, this point tonight. 
God does not ask us for information, but he asks us questions for confession. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Hey, Adam, where are you? Where art thou? Adam and Eve hiding, waiting on them to confess. Who told you you were naked? In Genesis 3, verse 9 through 11. Who told you you were naked? Uh, Did you eat of the tree? Another chance. Confess, Adam. Uh, Confess your sin. What does Adam do? What we do. The woman. I don't have time. Uh, The woman that you gave me, God. See, if we can't point at someone else, we point up. If I can't blame my friend, my spouse, my family, my boss, then there's really nobody else to blame but up. God, if you had given me someone else, if you would have given me a better job, if you would have given me a different house, if you, wait, wait, wait. Whose fault is this that Saul has done? Remember, Samuel said, what hast thou done? What did you do, Saul? And what does Saul do? The people were leaving. You didn't show up. The enemy was closer. I made myself do it, Samuel. All of that was excuse. He said in verse 12, I forced myself. Garbage. You didn't force yourself. You got scared and gave in. Instead of trusting. And see, we excuse our behavior, our job, our boss, our co-workers that don't like us, our kids that disrespect us, our spouse that doesn't meet my needs, and we excuse our behavior. Someone said, fear that does not take you to God will take you away from God. Fear that does not take you to God will take you away from God. Saul was driving himself away from the Lord. and Because of that, there are consequences, and we see that lastly tonight in the timing. Look here at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou. Now remember all of those excuses? Samuel doesn't mention one of them. Isn't that ironic? The fact that Samuel could have said, well, you know, I, you know, I understand. You know, I, I'm sure it's getting scary. You know, all these people are leaving and all those guys. Man, if those guys would have stayed, Samuel probably wouldn't have done. He doesn't excuse that. He simply calls it out. Saul, thou hast done foolishly. You've acted like a fool would act. Saul, uh, you're a leader of men. You're not the spiritual leader. You're supposed to be their captain in battle. And you're supposed to be an example. Um, What was his crime? Look at verse number 13. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Remember Psalm 14, 1. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. When I get to the place where my actions take place without a holy fear of God, the Bible calls me a fool. When I get to the place where my actions lead me in a way where there is not a holy fear of God, hey, I'm not going to do that because God is watching and God uh, has been too good to me and I I don't want to displease Him. And I fear Him. I have a holy respect, a fear for Him. And I want to honor Him. I want to bring Him glory in my life. I would never do that. When I get to the place, the Bible calls me a fool. I have to consider who I'm sinning against. I'm sinning against a holy God. 
Saul made his decision and God made his. He would remove the family. Two years in. And Saul is informed that he'd be replaced. Now verse 14, we see what kind of leader God is looking for. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded me. You know, we know that was David, but we don't even know that Samuel knows who it is at this point. We don't know. All of a sudden, that is removed from Saul. And it almost appears that Saul accepts it. There's no rebuke. There's no rebuttal. There's no remorse. There's no attitude from Saul of repentance. None. They just go on. It just moves on. But at any rate, Samuel leaves and Saul gathers his troops to go meet up with Jonathan. Verse 15, we see how many men left Saul. It says, And Samuel arose and got him from Gilgal and Gibeah of Benjamin. Saul numbered the people that were present with him, about 600 men. That's reason to be afraid. 36,000 troops. And now Saul has 600. 600 from 2,000. 1,400 people went home. Afraid. But in desperate situation, verse 19. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. That's not Jesse and Beverly, okay? That's no smith. No smith found. Blacksmith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. There was no one even there to sharpen swords, spears. Uh, the Philistines had amassed all of these people to themselves, employed them to where there was no one to help the Israelites even prepare for battle, much less be in battle. They had two offensive weapons. You see in verse number 22, Saul and Jonathan had weapons, nobody else. This is a bad situation, a very bad situation. The Philistines closing in, they're outnumbered, outgunned, outmatched. And this is what Samuel warned them of in chapter 12 and verse 15. This is where we'll finish tonight. Remember Samuel said to the people, But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. What did Saul, uh, Samuel say, hey, if you turn against the commandment of the Lord, God will turn away from you. What was Saul's crime? You turned away from the commandment of the Lord, Saul. You did exactly what I said not to do. You've led the people down this path to where there is no hope. There is no, you've gotten here because of your own decisions. And in our lives today, when we look around, there's nobody to blame. I can't blame somebody else for my decisions. My decisions are my decisions. I chose. I chose to sin. I chose to fail. I chose to do those things. Uh, people say, well, I you know, pray for them because they fell into sin. That's hogwash. Nobody falls into sin. We step into sin. We act like sin is an accident. Sin is intentional. I looked at this, and I looked at what was right, and I looked at what was wrong, and I chose what was wrong. Sin. But we think about our lives today. This showdown that is coming is imminent. And for us, in the battle of the Lord, and the battle is the Lord's, there is a showdown that is imminent. You and I are in a battle 
for the souls of men. When we turn our backs on the Lord, we give in to evil. We might think that we can avoid that encounter with evil, but there is a showdown coming. It is coming. The question is, who is going to fight? Are we going to fight? Uh, am I going to go into this battle that I'm not prepared for, that I'm uh, unmanned, I'm, I don't have a weapon, and I'm not ready for this? It's not my battle, by the way. There is a major showdown coming, almost like two opposing forces that are squaring off together. And that battle continues today. There is a fight that we cannot see. A spiritual warfare that many times we do not comprehend. But at the end of the day, hey, God is going to win. God's going to win. Because the Bible says so. I don't need somebody's opinion to tell me who's going to win. I already know. Because God gave it to us. He gave it to us in His Word. He is going to win. But all of this could have been avoided. And in our lives today, the battles that you and I face, many of them can be avoided if we'll simply honor the Lord in the decisions that we make. Have we honored Him? Are we doing anything to strive to bring Him glory in our lives? Can we pray and ask the Lord to help us not even get to this place? But can we set aside our decisions, what we want, and say, God, I want what you want. First and foremost, I want your glory. I want to see you work. That should be our prayer. Not that I get what I want, but that God gets what he wants. And what he wants is our heart. That's, what, that's why he sent Jesus. That's why he died. That's why he was buried. That's why he rose. We get ready to celebrate Easter. That's why we do what we do. It's because of what he provided by sending us a Savior. That's why. And the goal of our life is to bring him glory. But is that what we want? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how your word shows us what you desire from us. Lord, we are not good. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Lord, but we have a good God. We have a Savior who is perfect, sinless. Lord, and that Savior is Jesus. Lord, his name is is Jesus. And as the song says, there is something about that name. Lord, he bled, he died, he rose for the salvation of mankind. And Lord, only those who receive Jesus as their personal Savior are going to heaven. Your word clearly states that only those who place their faith in Christ are going to heaven. And Lord, I ask that you please help us to search our hearts. Number one, are we in the faith? As Paul said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. And then, Lord, I ask that you please help us once we know that we have received you as our personal Savior. We've made that decision clear, Lord, that we would strive to stand. Lord, knowing that the battle is raging, and Lord, knowing that if God be for us, who can be against us? Lord, you said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Lord, this is not ours. This is yours. Lord, everything that we say that we have belongs to you. Lord, help us to be good stewards of what you entrusted to us and help us to be bold as lions, but at the same time be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Lord, we love you and thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go to our